You're listening to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Maya Dubinsky. Let's see how you can bring the evolution revolution into your parenting. Our guest today is Maureen Minchin. She's a historian and an educator. She was an IBCLC for over 20 years. She's written several books, including Milk Matters, that is actually three books in one. Milk Matters covers the shocking truth behind formula industry marketing strategies and the impact that formula feeding has had on our society. It's also a guide to dealing with allergic babies. Hi, Maureen. Hello there. It's great to have you here today. Let's start with the basis behind your um, formidable uh, and shocking even and um, groundbreaking book, Milk Matters, uh, which is the milk hypothesis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Fundamentally, the book which is entirely scientifically based. Um, there's about 40 pages of footnoting um, to refer you to the scientific articles that, that, that generated it. Basically, it's arguing that the diseases of Western civilization are very closely linked to what was the worst and greatest and completely uncontrolled experiment conducted on human infants, which was the removal of mother's milk um, and its substitution with other things. Now, people are able to recognize that early substitutes were damaging because they harmed children and to the point where they died. Um, a lot of children just did not survive early substitutes. But of course, Time moved on and people got better at um, making the substitutes to the point where children survived. At first, the only criteria for was this a good product to feed your baby was did your baby survive and did your baby grow fat? And those things were possible with the formulas after the turn of the 20th century. Um, from late 19th century onwards, formulas were being produced that enabled babies to survive and to grow fat, although Many more of them still did die uh, than would have died had they been fed by their mothers. Um, the milk hypothesis argues that that change um, away from the use of women's milk to using substitutes was the cause, the underlying cause of much of the ill health that evolved in Western societies, often called weird nations, um, standing for Western, educated, industrialized, um, rich, and forgotten the last one. Democratic. Democratic, that's yeah. right. Um, in weird societies, um, women were seeing that they had more freedom if they could give their babies to other people to feed and so forth and so on. And so bottle feeding took off among um, the elites, just as it's taking off among elites around the world now. Um, and in fact, that change has had far more impact than anyone could have imagined um, before we knew about the ways in which women's milk interacts with the development of the child. So the milk hypothesis basically is that we have been seeing intergenerational harms, that the harms that are done in one generation um, go on to affect the next and that therefore things get worse as each generation comes along. 
And I put together an infographic, um, which uh, I'll put it up here, but it is, you won't see it if you're just listening to the podcast, but you can go and see it um, on my website, um, which Maya will undoubtedly give you a link to. Um, basically, in the early days, a healthy mother who herself had survived childhood diseases well enough to go on to reproduce, and that meant she was basically a very healthy woman, um, had initially, she produced a baby that was attuned to her body and her environment. Um, those childhood disease survivors ate a normal, fairly ordinary diet. Um, there was nothing like the excesses of food that we now have available. Um, she gestated that baby on that natural diet, which in fact she would have gone on to um, in fact have in lactation as well as during pregnancy. She birthed at home and she breastfed ad lib from birth because without that the baby didn't survive. So th that's a kind of index, uh, an imaginary index mother, um, generation one. Um, that led to maternal cell transfer, which included pluripotent stem cells that can actually make a difference to the growth of the child. The child would have inherited uh, and had created a normal healthy microbiome. Its genome would have been expressed in the ways, the genes would have been expressed in the ways that it was programmed to be. Um, and the whole process was a protective process for the mother as well in that, uh, well, we don't need to go into all the detail, but that meant there was a child who was tolerant of the environment and of the diet with a wide immune repertoire inherited from the mother. Um, the genes expressed optimally um, with little epigenetic damage. Um, and those early formulas that substituted for breast milk, it's important to note that they, the kids who survived those um, were generally recognised as being less healthy than the children than children who are breastfed. Uh, in the 1930s, for instance, it was obvious that, uh, and it was commented on, that you rarely ever saw eczema in a breastfed baby when they did a study, seven times the rate of eczema um, in children who were not breastfed who were being formula fed. Now, that first generation of babies exposed in hospitals to formula because hospitals were rapidly seen as marketing places for um, companies, they vied to get their product in free. They gave it away to the hospitals. In fact, they even sometimes gave a million dollars or more um, for the right to give it away free to the hospital. So they were buying their way into the medical system. Uh, and with they were well aware that if their product was seen within the context of a hospital that was trusted to be the best thing for mothers, then the product that was visible there would be seen as the best product for the baby. And in fact, in many ways, mothers began to buy into the idea that formula was as good as or better than breast milk. But the children, that first generation of exposed children, went on to generate the next uh, generation, obviously, when they survived infancy, grew up and reproduced this, the harms that had been produced in them were going to affect the subsequent generation. We have to remember, we all actually begin, the egg that's going to be us begins in our grandmother's womb and then the fetus is carried in our mother's body so that all of those things are affecting the person in the, in the present, um, all the exposures and the harms that have happened in the past, as well as all the good things, of course. Probably the critical environment for creating problems was the hospital nursery where 
routinely, and I should say it was obvious um, that companies recognised this too, American companies gave hospitals plans um, to um, build uh, their hospitals and the nurseries were significantly far away from the mothers, sometimes on another floor. Um, and the mothers were not encouraged to see their babies um, in hospital. Mothers stayed in hospital. They were separated from their babies. Babies were put in nurseries. Um, uh, mothers, of course, were highly anxious being separated from their newborns. Uh, they had, you know, at least three to five days stays in hospital, during which time the baby was almost certainly going to be given um, some of the formula by nursing staff who quite, you know, feeding the babies was one of the nice parts of the nursing job. Um, and in fact, one nurse confided to me that she really missed the old days when you could just sit and cuddle the baby and feed, and that was part of your job. Um, of course, that meant the babies were not getting what they needed from the mothers. They were often given formula for all sorts of reasons we now know not to be valid because being starved and not being fed at anything other than four hourly intervals, of course, they developed some jaundice and then they had to be given formula to deal with the jaundice. And there are all sorts of ways in which the hospital practices interacted with the ability of the children to actually access the breast and breastfeed and the ability of the mothers to be able to 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 breastfeed successfully because if you don't get off to a good start yes you can succeed but my goodness it's much harder than if you get the right treatment from the beginning so by 1950 fewer than one in five babies in america was ever breastfed so you're looking at a whole population that has been exposed um with it you know some exceptions always there'll be exceptions to all generalities um, but the whole population had been exposed to formula and you're into the second generation, sometimes in some cases the third. It wasn't until, and, and I would say listening to my mother um, talking about how surprised she was to hear me in the 1970s talking about the high risk of cot death, she said, there was never a baby died unexpectedly, not the way they're dying now. You know, it was, it's interesting that, Cot death emerged in the 1940s as a major concern and autism was first diagnosed initially in the, as a rarity in the 1940s too. Um, so you're looking at um, changes in patterns of, of health. Um, obviously, I'm generalising horribly in this, but the book has all of this stuff in, in great detail with fully, fully referenced, so ignore any slips I might make in terms of it. By the time the second generation has become a mother, she will have an obviously allergic baby, a baby that is, and by the 70s, it was taken for granted. And we were told it was normal for babies to cry, um, absolutely normal for them to scream, to writhe, to not settle, to be difficult. I couldn't believe that. And that's what started me on my journey. It didn't seem sensible to me that human infants would be such trouble to their parents um, because I couldn't see how they could have survived in the natural environment. Um, if you alert every predator to the whereabouts of the, of the mother and baby at a vulnerable time, um, you, you're not really doing well in terms of likely survival. And humans... And we don't... We don't see that in uh, in hunter-gatherer societies. We we don't really see as many fussy babies as we do in Western nope. societies. No, we don't. And immediately, if a baby cries, it's picked up, which is the natural response. In fact, those babies hardly cry because they hardly need to be picked up because, again, you don't leave human babies around um, in situations where there are predators. 
So what we've got a situation by the 70s where colic was being talked about as normal, where it had moved on from saying that mothers were the ones who just couldn't manage their children to, yes, this was just a normal developmental thing in children. But what was interesting to me was that colic seemed to emerge about three weeks after, uh, two to three weeks. It was even called three-week colic um, in some American books. That's just about the interval of time it takes um, for sensitization to lead to symptoms um, in that newborn child. And so whenever I hear a pattern of, oh, the baby was fine for the first couple of weeks and then fell apart, that's when I start thinking, let's find out if that baby was formula exposed in hospital and let's see if taking milk out of the mother's diet is going to make a difference um, because that's one of the things you come to. So all the way along, we've got patterns of ill health emerging that were unusual previously. If you look across the historical spectrum, yes, they existed, but were they commonplace? Were they taken for granted as normal? Um, we were told in the 70s it was normal for babies to have up to seven uh, infections a year. Um, well, no, it wasn't among the babies who were being exclusively breastfed, and we felt we were odd in that we were not having those sorts of issues. So along it goes, um, the generation... Um, three babies um, who become mothers, um, it's now obvious that they're producing these uh, allergic babies and we're able now to diagnose if we had the capacity to test every baby. There are now differences, measurable differences in some of the immune components that will flag that this is a child likely to be. But we know just at the grassroots level that if both parents are allergic, it's highly likely that child is going to be allergic. Um, where that was not the case in the past, um, you didn't have that same predictable pattern of this baby is going to be um, a difficult baby where you had uh, parents who hadn't been already made allergic themselves. So now it so, doesn't matter if the baby is formula fed or not. That's right. So, You've got yeah. breastfed babies who are now um just as often, and and if you go back into the books, for instance, if you look at the um, FPIs, the food protein intolerant um, eosinophilic syndrome that causes gut bleeding in babies, there are definitive statements in the 1970s and 1980s saying no breastfed baby develops this. This is a problem of formula-fed babies. Not true now, another generation on those breastfed babies are still less likely to have it and it's still less likely, it's still not going to be as severe um, in most cases. But there so, of will course, be it does matter. It, just, yeah. It, it, yeah. it does matter, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but they, they're still, even though they're breastfed, they're still likely to develop allergy because their parents weren't breastfed. Yes, and it's important for parents and grandparents to recognize that that intergenerational harm says that no present-day mother is really responsible for any of the problems that her child is having. And mothers beat themselves up feeling guilty about, oh, it must be my milk, there's something wrong with me, I should have been able to do this, that and the other. In actual fact, she's inheriting the past and she's looking to the future to do better. Um, but she will be lumbered with some of the problems that are going to be presented to her by the past. And if I'm talking to grandmothers, I often say, you've got, your daughter has got an uncontrollable, hyperactive, um, allergic um, child. That may have more to do with the fact that you formula fed her 
than it has to do with how she is parenting that child. And that's a tough thing for grandmothers, of course, but it's the reality that, in fact, that mother, having had the problem she had, is not necessarily responsible for her parenting. Maybe she may be a perfect parent. She may be trying to do her very best, which is all any of us can do. Um, but the reality is the way that the genes have been expressed in that child of hers has been influenced by forces well outside her control. And um, can you explain a little bit about how that mechanism works? How does this affect uh, go from one generation to the other, the effect of formula feeding? How is it passed on? The changes, there are many things that affect the emergence of disease. They're factors that are not changing the genome, but they're changing the way that the genes get expressed. And so there are lots and lots of things, everything from stress to you know, a whole heap of things. There's a, a diagram in the book that tries to summarise them. Um, and But the single largest uh, impact um, is the milk that the child is getting because milk has evolved to actually guide the development of the child in many ways. And if you don't get that, that input from the milk, um, then the way you develop, and you do get input from other um, factors, you know, you get inputs from ultra-processed foods, um, then, in fact, you're going to have a different expression of genes. Um, we know when they finally started to get around to looking at something other than survival and weight as measures of outcomes, you know, do these children do better if they're breastfed, we found all sorts of ways in which these children are measurably different. Um, and it surprises me that there hasn't been more of that information come through to parents. For instance, there are differences in brain white matter development measurable in the first year of life between um, children who are breastfed and those who are not. And there, of course, even that, the, the breastfed classification often covers children who are now being breastfed but who have also been formula fed in the past or who may be getting some formula feeding now. Um, the definitions of breastfeeding have been one of the problems in getting good research data um, Exclusive breastfeeding from birth, a baby who's never been exposed to other food than breast milk from birth, it is a very rare creature indeed in Western society. And that should be the, the gold standard that we look to. Um, and then we look at the other variants um, across the, the field, whether it's whether the baby's bottle fed breast milk or whether the baby is given some breast milk, some formula. They'll all have different impacts. Um, and the one that ought to be the norm would be the one where the baby is fully breastfed from birth with marginal or no exposure to other foods. Some traditional societies did give traditional um, tastes of foods at different times, but the microbiome, the gut microbiome is one of the, the factors that modulates this. It's, it's, it's the your gut bacteria are, are governing how you your genes get expressed in lots of ways. Um, and we've known for over 100 years that the gut microbiome of the breastfed child is different from that of the formula-fed child. Um, but it's actually the gap is closing now because, again, the same things are happening. Um, if the mother herself wasn't breastfed, then her microbiome will have been changed in some ways. In fact, people are now saying that perhaps we've lost some of the most powerful um, bacterial friends um, from our gut and that, in fact, we may have to reintroduce them, which is what the whole probiotic industry is on about one way and another. But they're a long way from being able to give us definitive answers. 
And that's actually passed at birth from mother to baby. It's sort of uh, another way to pass on these um, right. phenomena from generation to generation. During, during the pregnancy itself, though, it was thought that the placenta was completely you know, sterile and there wouldn't be any. But there, are, there is an argument that, in fact, uh, there may even be some placental transfer during pregnancy. There's certainly meant to be um, transfer during the birthing process. And again, we lose that transfer with the high rates of caesarean section and the use of antibiotics and the other things that happen in Western hospitals. Um, but, the, but milk would have corrected all of that. Um, if, in fact, um, the baby had been fully breastfed. But there were studies in the 70s um, in the UK where someone just asked the question, they talked about the gut flora. The gut flora of the breastfed baby is different. And in those days, they couldn't really look very closely to see just how different, but they recognised it as different. And um, one study said that they looked to see how rapidly um, if a child was exclusively breastfed after that, how rapidly it would develop the gut flora characteristic of the breastfed baby. They found that in some cases the children never did. In others it took weeks, in others it took months before they finally had a gut flora that was pretty close to the fully breastfed baby. So we know that these things have been going on, but we haven't been telling parents that these are the consequences of introducing formula um, because formula makes it quick and easy to deal with the child um, in the early days. Um, you know, it's your way of you have, don't have to spend time sitting with the individual mother and helping her to get the, the latching on right and helping her to recognise when her baby's feeding and protecting her from sore nipples and all the other things that really need to be done. Um, if the baby's hungry, just put a bottle in its mouth and then you can get on with other work. Um, unfortunately, that was often the way things worked in the past and I would hope, but I'm not too confident, that it's very different now. One of the things that really amazes me is that a woman in the first days after birth, well, like the first 24 hours, let's say, she'll produce two to five milliliters of colostrum in a few hours. But when that baby is formula fed in the hospital, they'll feed them much, much more than that. To, I've yeah, seen babies yeah. given 70 milliliters in the first yeah. 24 hours in one feeding. Yeah. And, and that really amazes me because how, how could it be that we've come to distrust colostrum in such a way? When in fact colostrum, it's tailor-made for babies at that age. Yeah, the amounts of colostrum that babies get do vary considerably. Um, and of course, if we were leaving mother and baby together, we'd never really know um, because the baby would suckle when it chose to and would swallow and we'd never be measuring just how much there was. So I, I try to stay away from amounts because I think if we investigated, we'd probably find that there were significant differences. But the fact is if the baby has free access to the breast and wants to suckle, what it will be getting is a really highly concentrated, very small dose um, of a protective factors, um, a tiny quantities, but really, really concentrated. And many people around about the 50s and 60s when breastfeeding was going down the gurgler and people were saying, uh, look, well, as long as they get the colostrum, that's the, that's the important thing. At least then they were recognising that the importance of getting some, the right thing into the gut 
first was uh, uh, something that should be done. But, of course, what they didn't realise was that a baby will get that same dose of immune cells in 24 hours um, from the mother's milk as it does from the amounts that it gets in colostrum. The daily dose of immune factors is enormously high compared to the doses that people can give to children in a medical framework. I can remember... Um, the astonishment with which one eminent gastroenterologist sort of actually thought, yes, you're right. Oh, it was a case of he had been talking about the importance of colostrum and I said, but why talk about colostrum? This is breast milk does this. From start to finish, it will provide these massive doses of immune factors in 24 hours or in two in, in, in the volume that the baby gets. And it was quite clear he hadn't really even been thinking past that point where the baby was getting colostrum and that was good because it did paint the gut. It was so, talked about as painting the gut. Well, it wasn't painting the gut at all. It was actually facilitating. It was providing colonising bacteria. It was providing an environment in which those bacteria would be able to colonise um, and establish themselves. But, of course, you pour in 70 mils of formula into a child who hasn't yet actually expelled much of the fluid that it needs, that they're, they're waterlogged, you might say, when they're born. They've been in a liquid environment and they do need to lose fluid if they've had, if the mother's had um, medical deliveries um, that involved a lot of fluids into her, then her baby is quite waterlogged internally as well. And so it is one of those things where we can expect babies to lose fluid, we can expect them um, to lose weight in that early stage. Of course, we don't want that weight loss to be drastic, but we don't want to stop it either if what it is is the child adjusting um, its fluid balances and just getting the colostrum that it needs. Um, there are plenty of people who've written about this in ways that are much clearer than I'm talking about it now. And again, this is all discussed in the book in a nice, straightforward, practical sort of way So, and referenced. Um, so... I, <laughs> I think you're right. Um, I do not understand why such big doses are given. Um, I don't see that they can really be helpful. And there's now more studies that show that breast milk itself evolves over the time that the baby's getting it. Um, Professor Peter Hartman told me years ago that there are hundreds, literally hundreds of proteins in breast milk. And each of them has a specific sort of role in the development of the, the newborn brain, which goes through different stages of, of what it needs, um, and that the breast milk adjusts to provide more of those proteins. You'd never see this difference. Um, it's not something that you can quantify, but milk does just change. As the baby's um, myelination is proceeding, it will be different from when other things were going on. And... There's now a paper that's come out that talks about the synchronisation of the mother and the baby being important at a particular stage to establish um, a, a colonic um, bacterial flora that, that in fact, um, is helpful in immune protection. Um, again, I can't reference that paper in the book because it wasn't printed beforehand, but I've, I've talked about it on my Facebook page um, so you can get the reference and read about it. Um, he was, he's pointing out that, you know, he actually says it may be that mothers and babies, the synchronisation of the mother and the baby has become impossible in Western communities, um, which is sad. Um, so, 
to to express the value of breastfeeding, it, it's so hard to see how anyone can think that a living tissue with so many bioactive components and so much power in the form of the delivery, the, the closeness and the all the effects of being close to a body when you're doing all of these things, that that can be replaced by, you know, a bottle and teat um, and an ultra-processed mix um, of varying consistency and, and strength, um, which, you know, it, it's extraordinary that we would think that that's even possible. And yet there are plenty of women out there who think that that's even better than their own milk, um, which is tragic. I know a lot of... Uh... A lot of people even think about breastfeeding in bottle feeding terms. They'll, mm. they'll think if the breast doesn't work like the bottle works, then there's something wrong with the breast. And I often encourage people that are bottle feeding to think about bottle feeding in breastfeeding terms. And yes. we were talking about amounts. So, okay, let's say that a, a baby will take 90 to 120 milliliters in a bottle. But if you were taking that from the breast, it wouldn't be in one sitting. It'll be that amount over a, a few hours. So it's totally normal for a baby to snack on a bottle if they want to take 20 or 30 and have a rest and then go back and take another 30. That's thinking about bottle feeding more in breastfeeding terms and expecting the, the bottle to be like the breast, even though it, it as you said, it can't, but trying to make it more similar to breastfeeding instead of doing the opposite and mm. trying to make breastfeeding more like bottle feeding. Yeah, well, there's so many things go into that. The composition of the two fluids are quite different um, and digestive processes are quite different. Breast milk is being digested as it's being made. The enzymes um, are working away um, by themselves in the milk as well as helping the baby's body. But it's also the case that there are limits to how you could do that with bottle feeding because you're dealing with an intrinsically contaminated product. Um, it's a product that can never be sterile unless, in fact, you have sterilized it um, in the factory, in which case you wouldn't have included many of the current ingredients because they are you know, too much too, too much heat can destroy the, the heat label vitamins and certainly would knock off any of the probiotics that they're busy adding to the formulas. Um, formula is never sterile, um, and as a result, you kind of need to feed it and end the feed and clean up um, and clean up really well in between. Um, if you had the baby snacking on and off on the bottle in usual ambient temperatures in a, a Melbourne summer, that was what killed lots and lots of babies um, in the past. The fact that contamination occurred and there was time for it to multiply um, and it was sufficient to infect. The infective dose was one that the body couldn't cope with and so these children um, would actually... Perish. Um, summer was seen as you must never wean your baby from the breast in summer because putting them onto the bottle in hot weather increased the risk of um, every kind of disease uh, and um, just the intrinsic contamination of the bottle is, you know, once it's been opened, it's 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 not sterile. It wasn't sterile in the tin. Um, it can't be sterile. You can't make a sterile formula without end sterilization. Um, 
and that limits what you can do with the ingredients. Let's say there's uh, breast milk in that bottle. That would make mm -hmm. a difference for being able to snack on it? Not necessarily. Uh, mm -hmm. It would certainly be, there would be anti-infective factors that would retard the growth of bacteria. But, you know, people worry more about infection from the live fluid than they worry about infection from the powdered product made up with water. That That's not true. <laughs> they treat, I, I say, stop treating breast milk like it was some kind of frozen food in your <laughs> freezer yeah. it's not any kind of meat it has its own active mm. ingredients that keep mm. it safe uh mm. from bacteria for a few hours Within but maybe it, yeah. yeah let's say mm. if we're gonna snack mm. let's make small mm. amounts and mm. then yeah. make more and then make more instead of making yeah. a huge dose and then mm. uh wasting some of it because we have to mm. throw it away that's right um, yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things as as a lactation consultant working in the hospital, one of the things I noticed, uh, I noticed a lot was the the I would clock like 10,000 steps a day walking mm -hmm. around the hospital from the nursery to where the moms were. That's and terrible. one of the things I that were that was shocking to me in your book was that at some point, formula companies actually gave hospital floor plans and building instructions to build mm. their products mm. into the facility. And that mm. might have been the reason for this, uh, for, for all the steps I needed to take in a shift. Yeah. <laughs> it could well be. Um, it certainly wasn't the case that anyone has followed up there's a, a wonderful swedish unit that has taken seriously the need to keep mothers and babies together um, and to facilitate breastfeeding and that's nothing like the standard hospital ward where the mothers are in one place and the standard nursery where the babies are in others even now people are worried about having you know, bedside little cots in hospitals. They worry that they might drop the baby or whatever. But if you make the bed so narrow to start with, you're just asking for trouble. <laughs> you know, why not have a bed that does accommodate a mother and a baby? Um, because really it should be. Um, babies should be with their mothers. Uh, and yes, there may at times when the mothers are affected by medication, there may need to be someone else present um, or someone else carrying that baby. The baby needs to be in arms, not sitting in a plastic container miles from any of its <laughs> close family. <laughs> there was a, a father in Israel that he made a, a word play on cot death and he said, death to the cot. And mm -hmm. we, we should be getting rid of that, that cot and then everything and might... See, language is important, isn't it? Now, we talked about cot deaths back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. We even talked about it in the 70s. But now it's sudi. It's sudden unexpected death of infants. It's no longer cot death. Why was it called cot death then? Because the overwhelming number of babies died in cots away from their parents and they are still more at risk away from their family, away from their bodies. Um, and and But now we don't talk about this cot death because that's blaming the cot. Um, we now talk about, um, you know, um, 
it in a way that takes away any sort of suggestion that this might be more common in artificially fed children too or artificially fed children who are kept separately from their parents. So you watch the way that language evolves. It was called cot death for a reason because that's where the babies were dying and they were dying there because they were being left alone um, because they'd had large feeds of formula that would go four hours and people had expectations that you wouldn't do anything for them once they'd been put down sedated by that heavy dose of casein hard to digest um you know of course they were more at risk they're meant to be in contact with a baby with a body that actually helps them regulate their own temperature helps them regulate their own their own state of stress you know the contact between a mother and a baby um is actually important to both of them for regulating their state um, and yet we didn't realize that at the time when we were wrapping babies like mummies and putting them separately like little logs somewhere um, babies should be with a body um, for most of the time that they're very small what can you say about what you said we're not telling mothers uh, we're not telling parents uh, about these things and I was really wondering, what is stopping the information? I know that formula companies have a huge budget for getting their message out there. I, I've heard it's higher than the entire yearly budget of the World Health Organization, mm. their yearly budget for advertising. Marketing, yeah. But what's stopping this information from getting to parents? Why isn't there really another side saying, look, this is the information we have? Part of it is because we don't want to make women feel any worse about the fact that they can't breastfeed and we don't inform them about the reality of why they can't breastfeed um, because we know that they're not going to get the help they need. Um, that's it's, it's partly because we're nice people and we don't want to make anyone feel anxious or guilty about these things. It's also partly because we're cowards and we're not prepared to wear the flack um, that comes if you say these things in, in straightforward terms. If I want to make sure that a woman gets the support she needs and I'm dealing with a pregnant couple, um, I will make sure that I say in the hearing, and I do if I'm dealing with families, I always say the father needs to be there. He is an important person um, uh, and he needs to be there to, uh, or the other partner, of course, it may not be a, a male partner, but whichever partner it is that is not the biological mother, um, they need to hear it during the pregnancy what their role is um, and their role is not to try and take the place of the mother or to compete with her for the things that only mothers do. It is to support her. And if I want the fathers to take notice and see this as something they should take seriously, I tell them about the study um, that looked at reproductive tissue development under 12 months of age and found differences in um, reproductive tissue development between boys and girls um, who were formula-fed or breastfed. And I mentioned the fact that there was less testicular development in the boys who were formula-fed. And I find that concentrates the attention remarkably. I say this this isn't proved to have any adverse consequences one way or the other. No one has followed up on this to see whether having less in your first year of life has anything to do with Western epidemics of low sperm counts or any of the other issues that we have um, of fertility in Western communities. Um, 
but at the same time, I say until those things are ruled out, we can't rule out that possibility that this is a significant factor at play in Western infertility issues. Um, and that's enough. You know, that sounds like a good strategy to get those dads on board. Yeah, they listen much harder. Um, and you tell them about brain white matter development. And many of people now have experience of autistic children. Again, an epidemic arriving late in the 20th century um, on a scale where in the 1970s we were talking about kids who had attention deficit problems and who were hyperactive. But we were not seeing in every classroom at least one or two diagnosed autistic children. Um, and that's the situation for primary school teachers now. I don't know how they manage their workload, to be honest, because people are not providing special services um, for children with um, minimal brain disorders, as they were called in the 70s. Um, they, they are expected somehow to be able to manage a, a normal class and still deal with kids with real special needs um, who might have an occasional helper but not a one-on-one -on -one person the entire time. So, you know, the, the, the emergence of autism to me is stage three of the harms that Formula has been doing. Um, I can't prove that. Um, I make it clear in the book that um, to me, it makes sense because those differences in brain white matter development would have been enough to set the child's brain on a different developmental trajectory. And until we can rule out that, in fact, that different developmental trajectory didn't include autism, we, we don't have to prove it in. You can never prove that. Um, but we do have to start looking to follow up from these children and say, what is the impact? Um, many of them are now things like oxytocin um, is used um, as something that's used as a therapy in some autistic children. Well, funny, oxytocin's in the milk and they should have been getting it all through the first year of life. Um, there are so many little connecting bits and pieces that don't add up to any kind of proof but that are enough to cause people to think again about the safety of ignoring all of these bioactive ingredients in milk. Um, that What annoys me is that I know everyone who knows the science will go to extreme lengths to see that their partners breastfeed or that they themselves breastfeed, or they will procure um, donor human milk for their children. They know enough to know that this really matters. Mm. But they aren't communicating that to a whole lot of other people. And the bottom line reason for that was spelled out very clearly to me um, in 1984 by a senior official at the Food and Drug Administration in Washington. Um, I was writing Breastfeeding Matters at the time and I was cataloguing all the withdrawals from the market of infant formulas in America and I'd found quite a number. Um, and she had written an article, as a senior FDA person, she'd written an article comparing breast milk and formula, and she had left out at least half a dozen instances of recent withdrawals. It was in the wake of a disaster that actually, where formula actually killed and brain damaged some children in America because it lacked something vital. But anyway, um, I, she left these out of her article, and I said, why did you omit those, um, those recalls? And she said, oh, you know about those. And I said, yes, I know about those. Um, I found the information in the library here, so you must have known about them too when you were writing that article. She said, well, you have to understand. Here in America, um, we have to reassure American parents that formula is safe because American society depends on bottle feeding. 
And that's wow. the fact. That's the fact. Western society depends on bottle feeding. It depends on being able to separate mothers and babies. It depends on babies being able to be used um, and used for profit by carers and other people. It depends on mothers being pushed back into the workforce because they're easier to manage um, and less likely to be unionised and all the other things one way and another. So we have a paradigm in which Western society does not want mothers and babies to stay together um, and women have internalised that. Um, women have believed that somehow having a child is going to be a great burden to them and it is. It means that they'll end up without superannuation, without all the other things that we now require to survive long term in societies. There's a range in which um, it, women have accepted the loss of their mothering abilities and power in exchange for trying to have status and income um, security down the line. And that's a great shame, um, but uh, totally understandable. And it is true, society depends on bottle feeding. Um, so when we're asking to enable women to breastfeed exclusively for the first 12, for the first six months of life, to enable them to continue breastfeeding into the second year and beyond, which is what WHO is asking for, um, while giving other foods from six months and making sure that they're on a wide diet by before 11 months. Um, when we're asking for all of those things, we're asking for a complete revolution in society that will reward women for doing that, that will enable them to take up their jobs afterwards if that's a job they want to take up, that will pay them not to take up their job if their job isn't one they want to take up. <laughs> because the job they are doing for society by creating healthy children is actually really important. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's it's very it's very important for the people that are trying to get these messages out to understand that it's such a huge global issue that it's not about that one mother that chose to feed her baby formula. It's such a bigger issue than that and that we yeah. need to be working at a much higher level. It's not just getting the information out to parents because in a lot of cases, they might know the information, but still not be able to act on it because mm. of the way their life is organized, because mm. they live in the modern Western society. That's um, right. And way to talk mm -hmm. about choice in infant feeding is a joke. Most women have no choice. Mm -hmm. Only advantaged elites have a choice. Um, and in some cases, they've got interesting jobs they'd quite like to get back to, which is fine if they want to do that. But it isn't. It isn't a choice for most women um, because they need to be. They need to have a roof over their heads. They need to have income. They need to be able to feed their families. Um, and the way we've organised society, um, breastfeeding your child brings you no income, <laughs> brings you nothing other than more work um, and a, a loss of communicative. You know, a loss of communication with other people and an inability to get back into the workforce afterwards. In the 1970s, Finland actually um, I did have a, a really remarkable uh, group of women in the parliament and they had, um, they actually um, created a situation in which um, employers were forced to 
were required to um, give their jobs back to women after three years. They Women had paid maternity leave and paid for the entire time um, and they were enabled to go back to their job after three years. Um, and that was one of the things that led to big intake, a big uptake in, in breastfeeding because in point of fact they were able to um, see that it wasn't the end of things. They, they would be able to go back to their jobs at the end of the, the three years, by which stage um, the other thing that that group did was to um, make it mandatory that there be a, a child care place for every child over three um, that whose parent required it. So the combination of childcare arrangements, um, maternity leave, all of these things, they all operate together to either enable women to be with their children or to separate them. We're paying millions of dollars every year for babies that are being separated from their mothers to be put into the care of other people so that their mothers can go back and work. Um, and I think we'd spend that money much more wisely by paying the mothers to breastfeed um, that's there's there's so much more to it the arrangements within society are so big um it does take a whole cultural revolution and so you are asking for a big thing and in the meantime a lot of people are going to feel bad about realizing that their children are not getting the very best that they could have um mm -hmm. and the effect of that won't be drastic it's not a case of they won't survive childhood they will survive childhood but they won't be the children they were going to be if in fact they had been fully breastfed by their mother and allowed to have that synchronized communication going on with the breast milk providing the aids to development as the child grew i think one of the one of the things i've found trying to be to be brave as you said we need to be brave to to withstand what's going to come to us once we start communicating this message mm. that's going to make people feel bad mm. one of the things i found is good is to just bring up other things that we used to think were okay mm. but now we know that are not so good like smoking and pregnancy or even eating sushi when you're pregnant yes. and that might not be a good idea yeah. and I'm sure in the beginning for people trying to get those messages out, they got some oh. backlash saying, oh, I can smoke, you know, leave me alone. Don't mm. tell me what to do. Or mm, you don't yeah. want to make people feel guilty because they did smoke in pregnancy and things like that. But mm. now we know, just mm. now we know, we know better. You were talking about autism. There are actually quite a number of studies proving that connection between mm. formula feeding and autism of course we can't prove that there's a causal connection but mm. there's a connection there and it's showing up again and again autism mm. and adhd and mm. other brain issues these mm. things are coming up in research we do know more now and that's yeah. that's that thing now we know absolutely and the thing is um, often in the past, most of the research was sponsored by companies and the definitions of feeding were such they always favoured a nil outcome, that there wouldn't be any difference. So you sometimes had studies that said, oh, there wasn't any difference between the breastfed and the formula fed. And I remember there's one study that said um, the breastfed were those that had up to three feeds of breast milk a day and the formula fed were those that had um, less than that. You know, I mean, it just... Yeah, you, know, you wouldn't expect to see a difference given some of the definitions. And now, because we've muddied the waters so much, we've got so many children in the fourth or fifth generation of exposure 
the allergic kids, that in itself is going to be something that will minimise the difference between in outcomes between um, these groups. As I say, FPIs was unknown in the 1970s. Um, Cot death was unknown in breastfed infants in the 1940s. Um, you know, but those things are no longer unknown in the breastfed community because the breastfed community has been warped by um, what has gone on. And to get, as I say, to get a truly exclusively from birth breastfed child is almost impossible. Start looking at the details. There's that Israeli study that I spoke about. Um, there was, there was, um, there were indications in some of the uh, other notes to it that the children who were supposed to be breastfed, yes, had been exposed to formula, yes, had been exposed to formula, yes, had been exposed to formula. Um, mm. you know, the detail is, the devil is often in the detail of, of these studies um, and sometimes they don't give you the detail. You have to ask before you can find it. Certainly, and some, yeah, some parents yeah. don't even know. They don't even know their children were exposed to, to formula. Well, the classic study in the 1980s that showed that exclusively breastfed children, not one went on to develop allergy. They found, I think I talked about this in the um, the session we did, of the nine who um, were thought to be exclusively breastfed, all had been given comp feeds in hospital and only one of the mothers knew that that was the case. Um, that, so that if you'd asked the mother, was your child exposed to formula in hospital, they would have said no. Eight out of the nine would have said no. Only one of the mothers knew. You have to go back and do an audit of the records and you have to hope that the nursing staff have kept the records accurately when, in fact, in the 80s, the problem was the nursing staff said, oh, this nonsense about can't give a form. Just put it down, tell anyone. You know, there are a <laughs> lot of babies who got a feed without it being recorded in their notes um, because that was when we first started trying to end the practice, we got resistance from staff who thought that that was nonsense and the kids were so much easier to give them a dottle and let them settle and give the mother a rest, all done with the best of motives. Um, but in actual fact, absolutely harmful. Um, as my son, now in his 40s, um, ruse the day <laughs> that, in fact, I didn't know enough to... Um, Big baby, separate him, put him into the nursery, um, give him formula. Mum has to have a hissy fit before he's allowed anywhere near a breast. <laughs> yeah, and even even to this day, uh, recently a nurse in the hospital in the nursery told me if a mom d doesn't want her baby to get any formula, she should keep that baby with her at all times because right. if she puts him in the nursery and he cries, we have to feed him. That's it. That's right. so. yep. Yep. By my third, I actually took a sling in with me to a a tie the baby to me um, so that it would be impossible for anyone to take that child and give it something without my knowing it. Um, but in actual fact, I did trust one nursing staff person who is a good friend um, and there was another one who swore she had had eight kids and they'd all been breastfed and she was fine I let her have the child for one night um, and down the track when that third child started to show signs of reacting to milk I said I don't understand it you know she was I, I'm sure she didn't get anything and the friend who was the nurse on the staff said to me she said well you know I, I don't want to dob anyone in and I don't know that this is the case, but the fact of the matter is, you know, Marg always thought she knew best because um, she'd had her own kids and they were fine. And um, I wouldn't swear that that night that you let her look after the bub that she wouldn't have 
done it. Oh. Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. just you, you're unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, that was the only exposure, and that third child was much better than the previous ones. But it wasn't until she was well, uh, three or four or five, um, that there started to be any signs, and that was what what puzzled me. You know, look, she was mm-hmm. fine the entire time. All this is just starting to show up now. Why? You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it's possible, mm. you tell me. I'd love to end on maybe an optimistic note as we've brought all of this um, very important but a bit depressing information. Uh, mm. I, is there any hope for us? Can we fix this situation? Well, we, we can fix it at a one-on-one level. You know, if parents know enough um, and have access have enough money enough if they're part of an advantage group they can ensure that 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 they do the best they can in this generation that doesn't mean that they won't inherit some of the problems from the past but they can certainly improve things and that's all we can hope is that by doing this we can improve it it may be that we will have to rely on (laughs) the probiotics industry to help us rebalance um western gut flora um it may be, but we're a long way from knowing that, and I wouldn't be one of the volunteers for the first experiments one way or the other. Um, I think the thing that gives me most hope is the the group called the International Society for Research into Human Milk and Lactation. It's a multidisciplinary um, international group of real scientists doing the real work. Um, uh, they... Uh, a group who do very good science, um, they still have the same cultural biases of scientists everywhere, one way and another, but they are open to seeing the real uniqueness of human milk. Unfortunately, of course, and the other side of that is industry is there every step of the way trying to mimic in some way what it is they're discovering about milk and putting that into the formula and saying, well, we can do that too now. Um, I think we need governments to crack down on the ways in which industry, you know, uh, they are allowed to advertise supports the immune system. Well, everything you eat supports the immune system. Uh, Water supports the immune system. Everything supports the immune system. But how do parents hear that? We need to have crackdowns on marketing that clearly imply something to parents that is untrue, that in some unique way, um, this particular bit that they've added in lately um, is so important that it's somehow going to really improve immune function in the child. It's probably true that formula will go on getting better, um, but there's no guarantees about that. And until the day when we have sponsored um, independent um, research studies by brand, we won't know which is the best formula and which one is the worst. And none of the companies have sponsored that kind of public um, comparison. You know, you can get, you can find out which which washing machine is better than another. You can find out which anything is better than another. But the thing that's going to grow your child, you can't find out. Now, I think government should be insisting on doing studies on brands to see which are the worst brands and get rid of them, which Mm -hmm. are the ones that do better um, and endorse those to the extent that they can while still saying that, yes, but these are still powdered, ultra-processed powders. Even the ingredients that go into them have been processed before they're then processed with the formula. So um, 
human milk as a living tissue can never be mimicked um, any more than blood can be. Um, and I think we just need to say only women can produce milk, um, that the biological mother needs to be supported to get into synchrony and get her supply to match what her baby needs. That means don't interfere, don't think other people need to feed the baby anything. Um, and it, feeding a baby is about feeding the baby. It's not about feeding the emotional gratification of the other partner one way or another. There's plenty of things they can do besides feed the baby. Um, none of them is nice, of course, but, you know, that's it's not about them, um, unbelievably. Some of it is nice, cuddling. Yeah. <laughs> They can, they can carry, they can rock. Mm -hmm. they, That's nice. They just don't need to feed the baby. Mm -hmm. They do need to feed the mother um, and they do need to support her in every way, shape and form and to do all the housework and the rest. Um, I like but, that. Feed the mother. Stop yeah, focusing on wanting to feed the baby. Feed yeah. that mother. <laughs> now feed it's time the for the sushi. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> or the anything else. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. As long as, of course, she's worked out what the things are that are causing her problems too along the way. Mm -hmm. But Western communities now, allergy is so endemic, it's almost impossible to think that we'll get to a stage where we grow out of it. But you can only hope. Evolution yeah. is powerful stuff. <laughs> you said it. Maureen Minchin, thank you so much for being with me today. This was fascinating. And I definitely hope we can do it again. Well, I hope people read the book because when I talk about it, I generalize in ways that are not precise. But the book mm -hmm. you can take as the serious, considered statements on these topics. And if you're not interested, then that says you're resisting the truth. And I think you need to read it. If you're a health professional, read that book and see what you think. You don't even have to pay for it. Um, I, I've put it up free so that people can download it if they wish. That's amazing. Of course, I do hope you will get a hard copy. Um, and the hard copy, it will be on your shelf and get picked up and looked at whenever any of these issues come up. The book's name is Milk Matters. And you can go over to Maureen's website and buy it, download it. But the most important thing is read it. Very mm. important. Thanks. Mm. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I hope your take on parenting has evolved. If you know anyone who would benefit from listening to this content, please go ahead and share it with them. You can find me on evolutionary.parenting on Instagram. See you again on the next episode of Evolutionary Parenting Podcast.